1: Hello, my name is Andy Boyd, and this is New Books in Performing Arts. My guest on today's program is Sarah Lampert, author of the book Starring Women, Celebrity, Patriarchy, and American Theater, 1790 to 1850. Sarah, welcome to the program.
0: Hey, it's great to be here.
1: Could you tell us a little bit about kind of what led you to theater studies?
0: Yeah, um, so I am a trained historian who started thinking about popular entertainment in college, actually, when I took a course on um, on actually the history of freakery with my American Studies professor, historian Ann Fabian. And we read this book um, by historian Robert Allen called Horrible Prettiness. And it's about the origins of burlesque. I don't know if you you're familiar with it or your listeners are familiar with it, but one of the things that the book made me realize that has really shaped the work I do is that the way that we think about entertainment, um, how we decide what's tasteful, what's not tasteful, what's um, what's what is worth watching um, and enjoying, what's dangerous, is often attached to our ideas about who the performers are, and who's in the audience. Um, and so there's a lot about the social world of theater and other entertainments that's really important, and, and that those is are is a, is a historical issues.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and how did that insight lead to your own research?
0: Well, I started asking questions that, um, in college, I, I sort of didn't realize you could ask um, in, as a historian about Um, you know, the history of of opera singers, right? So folks who who come to the academy interested in the history of the performing arts might find what I'm saying a little bit strange, right? But the idea that we might um, study entertainers and study theater do what we call sort of cultural history um, was really exciting for me. It's not something I had encountered before. Uh, And so I started to take those questions to graduate school. And I I realized that some of the things I was really interested in about um, women's publicity, the history of women in public life and our ideas about changing realms of opportunity for women, I could actually think about those questions in new ways by looking at the history of theater performers, great, could you give
1: us a sense of what it meant to be a celebrity in seventeen ninety
0: uh, Well, I think it really depends upon um where where you are so in oh gosh, let's say or, in america like if
1: you're <laughs> a, if you're a you know a, an American actress. I don't know, maybe you live in New York or something around the turn of that century. What, what's life like for you? How do you earn your living? Uh, uh, what's what's your kind of social milieu?
0: Yes, thanks for that clarification. So one of the early stars who I, I write about, Anne Bruton Mary, um, I don't know if we could actually call her a celebrity um, but she she was one of the most celebrated stock actresses in in what was in the U.S. a, a pretty small theater theater market. There she acted out of um, Philadelphia. She was married to another actor. Um, early in her career, she started um, being hired to perform a little bit in New York because she was so so popular. And but for the most part, at at that period, right, there wasn't actually much incentive for her to to tour. She was really successful in Philadelphia. She made a really really good wage, and the the life of of an actor or an actress in this period involved really intense daily study and rehearsal because your repertoire would change every single night. Um, And then you'd perform, you perform in the evenings. The seasons would run from about, you'd have a sort of fall season and you'd have a spring season, and then you'd have a summer where you didn't have any employment. And so the money you earned during that regular theatrical season um, would have to cover your expenses for for the summer, unless you could get some summer engagements. But um, that type of life is going to change a little bit further into the 19th century when we start to get um, an expansion of of newer theaters being built in the U.S., more access to touring markets. And what starts to to happen, particularly in the 1820s, is you start to get some actresses and actors who are making a living as itinerants. And they are making really large amounts of money compared to stock performers. They are, but it, but it's also a pretty intense life because you may be booked um, in a theater in a particular city for a period of time and then have to travel um, traveling long distances, particularly in the early U S it's pretty rough. You're, you're traveling in stagecoach on, um, on, on, on dirt roads. Um, You may be traveling in pretty cramped steamer or early rail um, the the places where you would stay are not necessarily clean um, by any by any modern standards certainly but um, some of these itinerants really complained about the conditions they encountered it was a really exhausting and intense um, intense labor but you could earn a lot of money
1: yeah and and you kind of write about this making the situation of actresses specifically a kind of ambiguous role where on the one hand they're earning much more money than most women at the time. But on the other hand, they they do have this very grueling schedule and you also argue that they had very limited kind of autonomy or, or maybe agency if we can use that word. Would, it, it, would you say that's an accurate kind of summary of, of one of your main arguments?
0: Yes. And that's actually something I really, grapple with throughout researching the book and writing the book um, and thinking about these women's lives. And I sort of want to kind of call back to your question about celebrity because the people I chose to write about in this book were, for the most part, the most well-known, the most highly paid, the most sort of visible um, women entertainers in this period, um, during a period that saw a lot of changes in the structure of um, entertainment in america that was sort of part of this these larger transatlantic changes and so what it meant to be a star actress in 1790 looks really different than in 1850 but one of the assumptions that a lot of folks including me had when i was researching this early project is that the more famous you were the if you were an itinerant right if you were a touring star um, if, you're, if your name, your, your likeness, right, is being reproduced and you're being written about, right, that might make you able to be more autonomous, to, to challenge some of the strictures, the gender strictures of your lives. And as I, I dug into some of these women's biographies a little bit more, I began to question that assumption because of two things that, that really came, came out from the research. One was that for the vast majority of women in theater in this period, they're trained and their their career trajectory is really shaped by their parents and by the interests of their families. And and there's a lot of pressure on women to marry, both cultural pressure, also industry pressure. And, And in part, marriage is a way of sort of signifying your conformity to sort of respectable domestic roles for women in a culture in which that is um, incredibly important and, and becomes increasingly important as actresses in the early 19th century, particularly star actresses, are trying to convince their publics that they are reputable, respectable women. So that's the sort of second piece of it is that a big part of being very well known and well and celebrated is really having to be careful about your public image
1: it almost reminded me of like Britney Spears right that she's this you know incredibly famous well known one of the most well known people in the world and yet her life is completely controlled at this point, well, I, I don't know what the latest legal developments are, but until, I think until shortly, uh, until, until recently, she was pretty much completely controlled by her father. Would that have been kind of the norm for, you know, the Britney Spears of the 19th century?
0: Yes. I mean, and that, that connection is, is one that I've, I've thought a lot about. I actually wrote a small, a small piece, um, on that, on that recently, um, be- there are, there's a lot that's changed right between the 1990s early 21st century and and the period i'm writing about but it is absolutely true that in the 18th and, and 19th century the uh, theater was it was a family business um parents trained their children and they had an expectation like parents in many many other um, types of, of, of work to control and benefit from their children's labor. And when you had young women, um, girls in, and, and women who were particularly popular, right. They, they're, and this is the case with Clara Fisher, um, with Fanny Kemble, two women whom whom I'm right about, um, their parents really shaped and encouraged their, their starring. And in some cases in ways that we, we find these, these girls and women didn't really want, and there, they had a lot, there was a a lot of barriers to, to challenging that, um, to challenging that control. One of, one of the reasons is that, you know, in, in an industry in which is so built around family and, and, and these professional networks are also tied to family, Right the implications of a a woman sort of trying to break away from her parents' control could affect her ability to be hired, to be respected. Right. Um, And and there were, there are a lot of calculations that they had to make, which is not to say that there weren't women who broke away from parental control or, um, or sort of, but in some cases it was through marrying a guy who may or may not have been the partner who would support um, these women's visions of of their of their careers. Mm-hmm.
1: You cover a pretty wide uh, time span in your book from 1790 to 1850. What kind of changes do we see over that time? Does does the kind of uh, gendered boundaries of women's uh, lives in this certain you know performing arts milieu does it expand? Does it contract? Is is that too simplistic a way to think about it?
0: I think that it expands in some key ways. So the book ends with a trio of women um, who all became star actresses who were celebrated as American stars. That's um, Josephine Clifton, Charlotte Cushman, and Matilda Heron. And one of the things that is super interesting about each of these women, um, and they they sort of rose to renown between the 1830s and the 1850s. None of them came from theatrical families. They pursued stage careers from varying motivations that in which a, a degree of kind of economic pressure may have led them into this, um, the desire to express themselves through a stage career, But but they sought training. And for the most part, they all... Matilda Heron did marry. Um, but for the most part, all of them at the height, height of their careers were unmarried women who traveled independently, who were really contracting for themselves. And in some cases were caught up in scandals, right? They were always kind of, um, on the edges of, of respectability and vulnerable to, um, vicious attacks from journalists. But that type of autonomy and that type of trajectory for a girl with no family association with the theater to becoming a star would not have been as possible in an earlier period. Mm-hmm. The structure of, of theater, um, the business is changing a little bit. There's a shift away from relying almost entirely on families, on hiring families for stock companies. Now, this increases, in some cases, the ability, the sort of power of the manager, right, to sort of contract with individual performers. Maybe it, it sort of diminishes their bargaining power, right? There are kind of arguments we can make about um, that shift. But I think there are some opportunities for women. There were some opportunities for women in that shift. And the other thing is, I, I, I believe from this research that the expansion of starring and of sort of itinerant starring was was beneficial for women because it it made it possible for them to leave in and to, and to leave particular markets and and to go on the road and to increase their earning potential um, and in and that could be in, incredibly incredibly liberating.
1: I got the sense from your book that going to see a play in, say, 1830 might have felt more like going to a play, you know, in in 1605 than going to a play today. Uh, It seems like a very kind of raucous environment. I mean, you mentioned there were sort of periodic riots that would break out, (laughs) you know, famously the Astor Place riots, but that was only one of many. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I don't think that's really in the cards for a contemporary Broadway audience as much as I sometimes wish it it was. So <laughs> what, what changes to kind of make theater this kind of more sedate, respectable form of entertainment that you see in like an Edith Wharton novel rather than this, you know, raucous, often literally riotous uh, night out?
0: It has to do with a shift in terms of who theater is imagined to be for, who the publics are for theater and, and, and changing ideas about public sp- public space. And this is there, these changes are occurring um, in in England as well as in the United States. So I'm, I focus on, on the U S and, and this book, but theater 18th century, early 19th century theater is is conceived of as a, a public space with all ranks of society come together. And they each sort of there's a sort of physical mapping of this in terms of the, the structure, the interior design of theaters. And and that is that creates a, a really robust and um, interactive audience culture something that we take for granted today is that when you go to the theater, the lights go down, right? So your focus is automatically drawn to the stage. That wasn't the case until, um, mid, mid 19th century. And so when you go to the theater, you're interacting with the people you're with. You're also watching the performers. You may be completely ignoring the performers, right? In, in terms of whatever social interaction you're involved with. Um, and, and there's this, it's a really, um, the the term we use is it's a culture of audience sovereignty, right? Where the audience is really shaping um, and controlling the space um, in, in a way that could be really dangerous, right? Um, audiences might, would have called for performers to perform a soliloquy again or a song again, right? Or they could pelt someone who they felt was um, offensive either on stage or in their behavior off stage. One what starts to change is that managers in the 1830s and 40s in particular start to become interested in recruiting a more what we would call sort of middle class respectable audience. The rep- the status of theater in the United States is really fraught and contested because there's a really strong anti-theatrical element to American culture. And managers are really concerned about their ability to maintain a profitable, profitable, profitable business um, when you've got p- potentially riotous lower class audiences who are intermingling in the space with more genteel or elite audiences. And they try really hard to redesign the interior of theaters to make them more appealing to this expanding middle class. And in the process, through some changes to space and, and changes to the address of who theater is for, it, it leads to what scholars have called the disciplining of theater audiences. And we also start to see more segmentation of the theater market, where you start to see venues that are more clearly marked, marketed to particular social demographics. And that becomes more and more common by mid-century.
1: One of the things that I thought was interesting about your book was the extent to which a lot of the women you write about are not American, at least in the early part of the book. You write about a lot about uh, performers from, from England, from Europe, who kind of tour in America and become celebrities in America. Um, could you talk a bit about the kind of process by which American theater became... American in a distinctive way. I mean, it it seems like, uh, you know, in sort of 1790, it's still pretty dependent on British models. Is that true?
0: Oh, absolutely. And continues to be well, well through mid-century. This is something that often surprises people, right? Um, How much American culture in this period is incredibly um, shaped by British cultural imports, right? Right. So and this is also one of the things that can make that makes theater a little bit volatile. So most of the so standards of acting are measured on British models. The the first um, theater companies, and and I'm I'm talking here about largely ang- Anglo theater, Anglophone theater, in the mostly in the Northeast. There there is some Francophone theater um, in New Orleans that is um, that has been part of a sort of growing um, area of research by by some other scholars, but in the in the northeastern region, most of the theaters are largely um, populated by stock companies of British immigrants who came to the U.S. in the late 18th century, early 19th century, and managers are constantly trying to recruit both stock performers and stars from British theater. American periodicals are reprinting reviews and accounts of plays from what's going on in London, right? So if you are reading about um, arts and, and literature in the U.S. in the early 19th century, you know a lot about what's going on in London and you care a lot about it and you want to see some of those performers. Um, And so that's why there's this demand for British stars. And it actually makes it pretty hard for American-born actresses to move beyond the stock companies and and to get a bit more of a kind of broader cultural purpose Purchase, um, because they don't have that British pedigree.
1: You mentioned that standards of acting were kind of model on British ideas. What was considered good acting at the time?
0: (laughs) So, I'll I'll give you an example by talking a little bit about Fanny Kemble and Josephine Josephine Clifton. So, Fanny Kemble was this English actress, really, really popular, um, who, who comes to tour the U.S. in 1832 and she um her father charles Campbell, their family lineage goes back to 18th century british theater uh, and and her father um his style of acting was what um historians of theater have have called a more neoclassical style he's acting really emphasized the 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 sort of elegantly presenting a speech in a way that really conveyed the poetry of the verse, his daughter was a little bit more potentially influenced by a rival style of acting, um, often called a more romantic style of acting, that emphasized really strong emotional bursts using sort of starting and stopping and trying to sort of build up intensity extremes of, of, of outburst and, and quietness to try and, and capture the sort of emotional arc of a passage and generate a strong, effective response in the audience. And you'll you'll hear in a lot you'll read in a lot of reviews of acting different ideas about whether an actor or actress was too um, too over the top or maybe wasn't um, exciting and dynamic enough. Um, but the idea the the goal the goal of acting in this period in, in sort of my my understanding was was really to to generate the strong emotional response um from your audience and it was not necessarily through what today we would consider naturalism but actually i think by by our standards acting uh, in the 19th century would seem really overdone and and really um exaggerated
1: both uh, both the neoclassical and the romantic style you think yeah, would seem, yeah.
0: yes i th- i think so
1: is it frustrating as a historian writing about the live event of theater and kind of not knowing when a reviewer says, oh, this person was way over the top, like what that actually meant, like what that actually would have looked like? Or do you feel like you're able to kind of piece together from the sources a, a pretty good sense of how Fanny Kemble would have seen appeared on a stage?
0: It's frustrating. Like I it, <laughs> like it requires a lot of imagination and yeah. and one of the things that um one of the things that I have been I thought I thought a lot about in in writing this re- so reviewers writing about entertainers in this period had a lot of their kind of own um, their own acts to grind. So for lack of a more elegant phrasing, so to sort of go back to where we started the conversation, a lot of the journalists reviewing theater were really, like the reason why they were doing this is because they really wanted certain types of entertainments to be performed, right? They were really, they, they wanted theater to be, um, as they would put it, like uplifted. They, they wanted Um, there to be more of what they called the legitimate drama or sort of high drama. And they didn't like the fact that there were a lot of forms of entertainment, um, like sort of pantomimes and low comedy um, that were really, really popular with with audiences or types of drama that they didn't find particularly sophisticated or styles of acting that they found um, a a little bit um, um, lacking and not genteel. And so whenever you read these reviews you always got to kind of ask yourself, like, what does this writer want theater to be, Mm -hmm. right? And how might that be shaping the way they're reading this performer? So there's always these levels of mediation. And so then it sort of goes back to, right, what are some of the ways in which, um, what are some of the larger patterns of what's seen as bad? Why is it seen as bad? Um, Instead of automatically taking at face value, the idea that someone's acting may be bad if i'm if I'm making sure <laughs> making yeah yeah um
1: I mean, I think that's certainly something that we encounter today that I think every theater person knows like what are the you know kind of weird biases and prejudices that different you know prominent theater critics have today, and that they kind of read through that lens when when we read reviews by those people
0: oh absolutely, absolutely, one of the things that I think i found find a little bit frustrating in some of the older scholarship that um I was engaged with is some of that I found that some of that scholarship was more likely to take these texts at face value in ways that I didn't necessarily think they could be or they should be.
1: Mm-hmm. Could you talk a bit about how these women kind of navigated? their public performance, uh, or, or maybe their, their public persona is a better way to put it. Um, being as much in the spotlight as their theatrical performance.
0: Yeah. And, and I, I'll call back to Kemble and I, I promised you that I would talk about just being Clifton. So I'll talk about them <laughs> them together because I think they're a really interesting pairing. So Kemble, um, comes over in 1832. Her father actually arranges for her stage debut in London in 1829 because he's bankrupt um, from managing uh, uh, in in London. And so he is hoping to basically make a lot of money um, from her. And we know from her letters and her journal, which later is edited and published, that she's not really crazy about this. We also know that her father was very, very um, instrumental in trying to shape her reputation. She was very interested in writing. She really wanted to be a writer. She, she does um, become a writer, but um, so he wanted her to publish her poetry. He invited journalists to meet with them. She complains about this in her journal. Um, she he has her portrait painted right so in a lot of the sources we have about her it's her kind of bristling at the performance expected of her as a public figure and while there are things that she really liked about acting she really hated her publicity the sort of pr- this pr- way in which being an actress forced her into the public eye brought aspects of her private life into the public eye and and brought scrutiny to bear on her in ways that like she makes this offhanded comment at a stable about American horses that gets used against her. It's like published in a broadside that she's like attacking Americans. There's almost a riot in a theater about this. Right. And she's just like, this is, she's not, she's not happy camper. Um, she is very much a person who doesn't quite want to play the game of celebrity in a moment in which there is a growing media scrutiny of performers. Someone like Josephine Clifton, who tries to, who comes, she doesn't come from an acting family. She comes from poverty. Her mother works in, worked in the sex trade. Um, tries really, really hard to emulate Kemble in certain ways. She tries to play the same roles as her, imitate her style. Um, Actually, Charles Kemble trains Clifton a little bit. But one of the things that keeps um, dogging Clifton's career is that she's always found lacking compared with Kemble, right? And she doesn't have that London pedigree. And at various points in her career journalists keep dragging up details about her family background that are used to discredit her. And so she, at one point, she writes this public letter trying to defend her virtue and the virtue of her sister from these attacks. And so she, she is also somebody who, she doesn't have the luxury of, of sort of being dismissive of journalists. Kemble is dismissive. In some cases, it backfires. But for the most part, she remains pretty successful. Clifton doesn't have that luxury. Um, and she really fights for what, what ends up being a really longstanding and successful career. Um, but she's always, always vulnerable to these types of um, media attacks.
1: One of the things that I think might surprise a lot of listeners about your book is how much women often played male roles at this time. I mean, we, we might know about Sarah Bernhardt playing Hamlet, but that was maybe not as exceptional as we might assume, um, especially given you know, what we might assume about rigid Victorian gender roles. <laughs> Were these performances considered transgressive at the time, or do they only appear that way in retrospect?
0: Yes and no. Um, acting was wildly popular with audiences. It was also heavily criticized by some of those dramatic critics who I alluded to earlier, who found it tasteless. Um, but for the most part, American audiences, men and women went to the theater and enjoyed these performances. But I think what's important to remember, um, is that a lot of the roles in which actresses Wore the breeches were roles that involved playing boys or playing girls who dressed up as boys in order to kind of rescue a lover. Um, so there, there were ways in which they really reinforced ideas about um, that that women are there to kind of help and heal and nurture, or that associated femininity with with sort of juvenile juvenile-ness. Um, and there's a, there was, of course, I think the unmistakable kind of sexual allure of seeing an, a woman in pants, um, in these pantaloons. And some actresses actually like refused in their contract, refused to take on these roles. Um, and some actresses were really famous for them and in some cases pushed certain envelopes in terms of how they portrayed these characters. But... The What we don't see as much in Breach's, Breach's acting in this period are actresses taking on and being celebrated in what were considered sort of serious, um, dramatic male leads. The few actresses who did were really famous for doing so and beloved Charlotte Cushman is is one of the most famous Ellen Tree is another um, but because of the association of britches acting with this sort of more these more lower forms of drama and with this more um, sort of sexual appeal it was not um, it was sort of a risky endeavor for an actress who was trying to market herself within a more um, dr- dramatic Line or to to take on these some of these characters. Hmm. Could
1: you tell us a bit about how theater touring intersected with the western expansion, especially by kind of mid-century?
0: So, one of the things that starts to happen over the 1820s and 30s is managers start opening theaters in in regions of the U.S. that um, that are that are being um, where, where you basically are are establishing sort of an American settler settler presence, and and they're trying to so I think that theater in the 1820s and 30s very much is part of of a whole number of institutions that are trying to establish the U- United States dominance and and culture um, west of the Mississippi, and this has a very practical and um benefit to performers in extending the the potential reach of their touring right so it's in in the earlier period we might in in arrange tours between new york boston philadelphia some southern theaters um but for the most part there are primarily these eastern markets and all of a sudden By the 20s and 30s, there is access to theaters in Cincinnati, St. Louis. Um, Managers are opening theaters sort of along the Ohio River and the Mississippi River, and this sort of expands potential touring. There's also sort of so a performer can go out and do an engagement in um, in Cincinnati, and then tour within the region in smaller venues. And so your ability to make a living on the road increases markedly. And, and it creates, on the one hand, right, the ability for European, both English and then continental European stars, to extend the length of their tours and potentially increase their earning potential. But it also creates an opportunity for sort of a secondary um level of performers, sort of lower tier performers to start to develop regional reputations and and people like um, you you have some people um, like Elizabeth ha- Elizabeth Hamblin um, who actually is she she divorces her husband Thomas Hamblin who's just like a, a totally horrifying human being. Part of their divorce is that she can't act in New York anymore. so she goes on the road. And her ability to do that is made possible by these Western markets.
1: Could you tell us a bit about Fanny Elsler? <laughs> and and I I I guess one of my questions is like, what did it mean to be a dancer in the 19th century and, and what were people why were people going to go see her when they went to see one of her performances?
0: So she so Fanny Elsler um is was one of the most celebrated dancers of Europe at the time when she comes to the US. She was um, part of a very different entertainment culture in continental Europe where where you have basically sort of state-supported operas and ballets that really nurtured and supported These careers, and she she has a um, rises to prominence at the Paris Opera. She performs in London, and she is just wildly, wildly celebrated in Europe. Um, Managers in America want her to come to the U.S. She's not convinced that American audiences are are really going to appreciate her. That she's really going to make what's worth the travel. Finally, one guy convinces her and she comes in in 1840. Now, Americans have been exposed to European ballet um, at this point. It it was not as um, scandalous as it had been when it is introduced in the 1820s. And so they they have some sense of the conventions of of ballet and the types of of performance. But they're also one of the things that is incredible about Elsler um, so she is she, along with one of her rivals, Marie Taglioni, um introduced some changes in in ballet where dancers would spin higher up on their toes, basically, not full point like what we expect today, where you have like a blocked shoe, but really high up on their toes and and audiences were just like amazed by this and amazed by her spins. Um, And this is really, it's it's incredibly athletic and and dynamic in in ways that um, they found very exciting, but also a little bit scandalous. Now, part of the performances that Elsler gives in the U.S. were, were ballets that we often refer to as the romantic, romantic ballets, um like La Sylphide that told stories about fairies. And so you have these dancers performing characters that are not human women in ways that um some scholars who I draw on have argued kind of managed the sort of the um the aspects of the performance that may have potentially crossed lines of acceptable, um, display of, of women's, of women's bodies. And there was clear, definitely an eroticism, um, in terms of these, these spinning dancers with their skirts going up, but audiences were also just absolutely blown away by how much these dancers seemed to carry the music through their movement in ways that they they, the audience could read the music and the dancers movement and and described it as a poetry of motion. Elsler was met by huge crowds anxious to see her, let alone see her performance. And she, I mean, was met with this this wild fascination. Um, and and the way people described her performances were, Um, there, there was clearly something different in terms of her technique, her expressiveness, um, but also her that fascinated Americans.
1: Great. Well, Sarah, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you about your book, Starring Women. Could you give our listeners a sense of what your, your next project might be?
0: (laughs) So I, one of the things that I have always wanted to delve into a little bit more are women managers, and um, there's been some phenomenal research about um, women managers in London in the 19th century, and I've some of that work um, has has been really influential to me in this project. And there's a cohort of of women managers in the 1850s, in fact, who I think um, are are due a little bit more study and, and a little bit more investigation of how they were able to uh, sort of achieve. Um, these, these types of positions and in such a male dominated industry in this moment and and what it tells us about shifting realms of opportunity for women in um, 19th century theater.
1: Well, I'll certainly be on the lookout for that. Sarah Lampert, thanks so much for being on New Books and Performing Arts to talk about starring women. It was a real pleasure to get to talk with you about it.
0: Yeah. And thanks so much for taking the time to read the book and to ask such wonderful questions. I really enjoyed this. Thanks for the opportunity.